You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is a book critic for NPR's All Things Considered. He's a writer and a novelist. His newest work of nonfiction is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast. His newest novel is A Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Again, a great pleasure, Rick. Alan, let's get back to school in space. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we need a rock and roll song to introduce this, Back to School. But, uh, or it does sound like a commercial. Joan Slonczewski's novel, The Highest Frontier, which I think took her about 10 years to write. Um, you know, she's a head of the biology department at Kenyon College and de- a dedicated teacher and researcher. Um, and we, author and of a classic uh, novel, A Door into Ocean. It's a uh, mm-hmm. classic in the genre. Yeah, and, and uh, this is her new book, and it's filled with stuff about amyloids and all sorts of other chemical reactions that I understand very little of um, and it's there's a threat to uh, human civilization by something she calls an ultrafight uh, organism which uh, seems to have come to earth from outer space uh, and is uh, imitates uh, human uh, chemical structure and begins to assimilate itself into first into low-level organisms and then uh, we discover towards the middle of this novel, so I'm not giving too much away, that uh, one of the college kids, uh, we'll come to the college part in a minute, one of the college kids in this novel is actually part uh, ultrafight, uh, a mutation. In any case, uh, this is all about going back to school or starting college um, in a space university, in this space hub that circles the Earth. I think it's uh, 17,000 miles above the Earth, I believe in, in a, uh, a time about a hundred years from now. And uh, we follow this one girl uh, from a presidential uh, family. I guess her grand, one of her grandparents was president and her, uh, one of her current parents is running for president. And uh, we follow her freshman year. And it's quite interesting uh, to see Slonczewski's uh, uh, description of what happens in a freshman year in space of a hundred or so years from now. At the same time, um, we you know we see all kinds of uh, interesting innovations that she, as a as a biologist, uh, has some knowledge of the, these amyloids, which are a bacterial protein that self-assembles in, into any form, makes up most of the furniture and the food. <laughs> That, that this college uh, uh, offers to its students. I mean, and, and I've seen an article about this, maybe you know about it. Uh, someone suggesting in the not too distant future, you'll be able to print out clothes and they'll be made up of amyloids and print out, uh, you know, animals. Well, this is pets. And this is, so this takes this uh, notion of working with amyloids about a thousand degrees down the road, but it's interesting. Oh, so Jenny comes out of a presidential culture, uh, part of which is uh, Kennedy's, and another part of these is this, these Hispanic uh, folks who have risen to the presidential level. 
And the jargon of the time, including the college jargon, is peppered with uh, Hispanicisms. So uh, instead of cool, they say chulo, you know, and, and uh, the, pres the presidential candidate tries to ingratiate herself into, or himself into Jenny's world by trying to use that word, but all the college kids know when adults use it, it's not really chulo. <laughs> anyway, it's charming, but the way uh, Slanzowski uh, extrapolates on the notion of what American culture will be a hundred or so years from now with the vast influence of Hispanic population, but also the science element. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the extrapolation on what amyloids will be uh, used for, and also, uh, you know, the robots are uh, part of everyday life. They call them DIRGs, direct intervention robotic guardians. So some kids come to college with their DIRGs. Others uh, try to keep their parents from sending their DIRGs along with them to college. And Jenny, whose brother has died in, a, in an heroic attempt to save people from the destructive tsunami that uh, destroys the uh, seawall protecting New York City, he dies in this tsunami. Um, and she's so shaken by this, her parents have implanted what they call a mental derg in her. In her. So whenever her, she becomes too depressed, the mental derg uh, tries to perk her up. Um, and we follow her through her freshman year, through some a romance and through the uh, evolution of the college's year when we discover that these ultrafights have uh, really started to take over uh, literally the, the culture of this world and, and of Earth. You know, uh, when you were talking about the 3D printing, all I, and something that this book made me think of a lot was a book by uh, Thomas M. Dish called The Stuff Our Dreams Are Made Of. Mm -hmm. I don't know that. Um, it's an interesting collection of essays, and what it addresses is this notion that science fiction and the, the creations of science fiction often end up pulling the culture mm -hmm. and pulling the well, actual oh, scientists oh, yeah. and well, inspiring the scientists. We know that Arthur Clarke did that. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, when I was reading about the amyloids and the 3D printing. Now, 3D printing is already here, mm -hmm. in, in, but it's in a very limited aspect. And all of this is really just trying to create those great Star Trek things on Star Trek where they just dial up a meal and it would just appear. Yeah. Well, that's what happens in this novel. But there are actual restaurants on this planet where the rich kids can go and dine on actual uh, organically grown vegetables and that they can have a nice Italian meal. I mean, as in most colleges, the cafeteria food is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> print out or no printed out food, right? Well, one of the things, too, I think that makes this book so entertaining is the way that she uses revelations of the world and revelations of the technology to mm -hmm. drive the plot and to yes. keep you really engaged right. as a reader. Right. I mean, it as you read this book, on um, it's just as much fun to explore this world yeah. and find out what she reveals because she seems so smart about it. Yes. And it re and also, it's not just simple extrapolation. She's, you know, an artist at yes. this. Yeah. And so when she's creating these cultural Phillips and, and integrating, you know, the ultra fights into the world, she does it in a manner that is constantly surprising and really engaging for a you as a reader. Yes, Lanzuski is one of those rare birds, a scientist who knows how to write and, and who knows how to imaginatively integrate what she knows about science into, uh, into the story.
and it's a, it's such an engaging story. And I think almost the best part of this book is the fact that this is just her freshman year in college. And I'm hoping that we're going to see four years of you college. A sequel? I mean, the one, if I had any difficulty with the book, is that it builds kind of slowly, but um, it's worth staying, you know, staying with every page. There's an interesting uh, discovery on every page. It's, it's and your... Jenny, she's really chulo. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a great, it's, it's your vacation a hundred years in the future. <laughs> One of the subjects they might uh, teach at the university in the future is the real history of the Soviet Union, if we can segue into this uh, extraordinary book of stories by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Uh, You're published for the first time. It's remarkable that it yes. took this long. I, I mean, what what is the matter with the United States? That it, 94. Well, it's, it's a combination of effects. Um, Chris? 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 Can you close the window? We're recording here. Is that your wife? Yeah. Huh? Uh, go back. Okay, let's go. Um, you're, you're wondering why it, it, it's uh, published by Counterpoint instead of a major New York house, Counterpoint being a major California house. I think it's a combination of things. I mean, Solzhenitsyn, who's made massive revelations about uh, the Soviet gulag, changed the course of history, I think you can say. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's nice, Mr. Solzhenitsyn, but what have you done for us lately? That seems to be the attitude uh, <laughs> among New York publishers. I guess. Um, so it, it gives a, a small house like Counterpoint the chance to publish this book of really extraordinary stories. They focus on the, the heroes, and I guess you'd say anti-heroes, of uh, the interstices of, of old Soviet culture generals and labor heroes and uh, kulaks who led a rebellion against uh, the Red Army and Stalin's minions because they didn't want to have all their food taken away to feed the people in the city and therefore starved to death. Mm. Um, so the material is fascinating. Not you know Your average American who knows about the gulags now, thanks to Solzhenitsyn, knows very little, I think, about what it was like to be alive in Soviet culture. Um, in in the twenties and thirties and forties and fifties, um, and and these stories focus on those times with a kind of uh, laser beam accuracy. Um, the p interesting thing about them is he, he he pulls this thing off that he he calls a binary short story. This is, is a really great literary technique. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, he he gives you the story from. The, the let's say the main character's side and then suddenly in the middle of the story flips to someone else uh, or the main character himself looking back on the on the situation and realizing how it was not the whole truth that he or she was living um, I, I found that really interesting a kind of uh, self-criticism that uh, Stalin never imagined well for me there were, I love the way that um, these stories really build a, a world for us that no longer exists, that m most of us never 
new and how powerfully it builds these with details, with these characters. Yeah. And, and it, it's really uh, just remarkable to just explore this world of the past, which is uh, as foreign to me as the as uh, Slonczewski's world 100 years in yeah, the future. It's really, you can see fiction is really the best kind of historical writing. Uh, I mean, he dramatizes these, these real life figures and lets us know how they felt as well as what they did in their time. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of them actually believed that what they were doing was correct, and some of them were had had doubts. Uh, and we, as I was saying, you know, we get to see the revelations at the end of the the stories as to what the truth actually was at the beginning. So they're kind of, in a way, kind of mystery stories. I think now that I think of it. Um, there's at one point. There's also a, a, a lot of uh, uh, a big attack on Soviet literary criticism that comes in in, in uh, <laughs> the, the first story, uh, mm -hmm. Apricot Jam, and uh, the the term that the um, Soviets uh, used for a writer who was not going along with the program is called a wrecker, right? And you can see Solzhenitsyn is a wrecker of uh, you know epic proportions in the, the, the in that he delivers the truth no matter how difficult it is for us to, to live with. Well, one of the things, too, and, and that's, I think, why the binary structure is so important, because uh, by virtue of giving us both sides of a story, by giving us opposing points of view, mm -hmm. you can really, through in the parallax, you can get a three-dimensional picture yeah. as to what the heck is going on. Yes. And you can understand, by un virtue of understanding it from both sides uh, of the story, you have an idea as to how, you know, um, those who are kind of perpetrating these horrific deeds with this kind of casualness yeah. are, you know, feel can feel felt it was justified. Right. While on the other side, there's some poor starving peasant who just wants to eat. Right. All right. It, I mean, it, the stories that focus on the battles between the kulaks and the and the red cavalry are quite something. Um, because the the kulaks, the, the the successful, the kulaks are the successful farmers, uh, have been uh, anathematized in, in you know in the American version of Russian history, I would think, and this really shows them for what they were, which is farmers who are having everything taken away f from them. They they will starve so that the the people in the cities can eat <laughs> doesn't seem entirely fair no and um, he goes more too it, it, it's nice to see stuff set in the russia that we that those of us who have any uh fragments of brain cells remember from you know the end the yeah. end of russia yeah well, I, I i i guess i should mention that you know we've, we've been talking somewhat abstractly about the technique i mean the stories focus on uh, world war ii several a couple of world war ii battles from the, the perspective of some tank uh, tank soldiers and officers and um, and uh, political meetings and factories and among these farmers all the way up until the time of perestroika one of, one of the I thought one of the most extraordinary stories was um, the one called times of crisis in which uh, times of crisis in which we get um, General Zhukov, the great hero of World War II, uh, 
sitting down to write his memoir and trying to figure out exactly what the truth was of his own life. Uh, and, and I thought it was a really extraordinary story. We see what he thinks was true and what he thinks is now true about what he thought was true then. Fascinating. And, and also, in that same story, we get another one of those uh, Solzhenitsynized portraits of Stalin, which is absolutely remarkable. It's a, it's a powerful collection, and I think um, within the, the short story form, I mean, he, he just is every bit as powerful and important as he mm -hmm. is in anything else he's ever written. Yeah, so you can see, as, you know, if you didn't know it before by having, by having read some of his novels other than the material on, on the Gulag Archipelago, he's, he's an extraordinarily gifted writer a great successor to the greatest Russian writers of, of the late 19th century. Absolutely. and Apricot Jam by Apricot Jam Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And while we're talking of the kind of shorter form, uh, our, our last uh, book is a piece by Dennis Johnson. It's a reprint of a story from, I think, was the, originally appeared in the Paris Review. Right, in 93, I think it was. Um, it's 116 pages. It's a novella. And it's set towards the end of the American, the period of the high days of the American frontier. Runs from about 1885 or 90, focusing on this main character uh, named Robert Grainer, uh, who's a, an American a worker on the frontier, through to the end of his life in, in the 60s. And it's a, it's a kind of Grant Wood portrait of life among uneducated workers on the American frontier, the people who built everything that we take for granted. Um, they took nothing for granted. They had virtually nothing. All they had was what they did. It's an extremely interesting portrait. And, and this is a book where I think, even though it's short, where the prose has the feel in some ways of what was what they were creating. It feels very handcrafted. Yes. He takes nothing for granted. It's almost like He's an engraving. We should say the name is of, this, of the novella is Train, Train Dreams. Train but, Dreams. But it, 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 for me, it was like a, a line drawing or, or an engraving. Exactly, yeah. These it reminded me like of a really nicely carved piece of furniture, like a, a table where every where you can just see, you know, the sanding that it was just, you know, yeah. perfectly put together. And some wormholes. <laughs> um, it, 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 the, the feel of it for me was a lot like uh, Jim Harrison's novella, Legends of the Fall. A lot of declarative sentences, uh, not much about the f in, internal life of the people who experience these events, but you get a, um, I, I, I think it's the style is something I might call something like naturalistic emotivism or something like that. because. <laughs> You do get a feel of what it was like to live this life just by a series of seemingly straightforward sentences. Let me, let me read this passage. This is when Grainer uh, begins to express his uh, desire to be with this young girl named Gladys, whom he's met at church. Um, this was on a hot June day. They'd borrowed a wagon from Gladys's father and brought a picnic in two baskets. They hiked over to Grossling's Meadow and waded into it through daisies up to their knees. They put on a blanket beside a 
They, excuse me, they put out a blanket beside a seasonal creek trickling over the grass and lay back together. Grainer considered the pasture a beautiful place. Somebody should paint it, he said to Gladys. The buttercups nodded in the breeze, and the petals of the daisies trembled. Yet farther off across the field they seemed stationary. Gladys said, Right now I could just about understand everything there is. Grainer knew how seriously she took her church and her Bible, and he thought she might be talking about something in that realm of things. Well, you see what I like, he said. Yes, I do, she said, and I see what I like very, very well, he said, and kissed her lips. Ow, she said, you got my mouth flat against my teeth. Are you sorry? No, do it again, but easy do it. The first kiss plummeted him down a hole and popped him out into a world he thought he could get along in, as if he'd been pulling hard the wrong way and was now turned around, headed downstream. They spent the whole afternoon among the daisies, kissing. That's just beautiful. It's powerful stuff. It's really lovely, and it really captures that, the feel of that time and those people. And, yeah. and it's a book that... Um, it's interesting that you wanted to read aloud from it because I think that mm -hmm. it's a book that when you read it as a reader, you're going to stop and just want to read mm -hmm. sentences aloud just to hear, yeah. you know, your own voice. And that's an important kind of book. And not every book is like that. Not every book should be like that. Right. But the ones that are like that are really a joy to come by. And Train Dreams by Dennis Johnson is certainly that kind of book. You can read it in an afternoon and you'll think about it for a lot longer. Yeah, it's it's another uh, mental vacation for you, and you'll be able to visit those scenes in your memories. And that's what really matters most at, for me about a good book. I agree. If you can go back and visit and say, you know, I was in that meadow. <laughs> as close as I could get to it, anyway. <laughs> as close as I could get. I've been speaking with Alan Chews. His newest book is Song of Slaves in the Desert. Thank you for joining me, Alan. A great pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.